Welcome to the Placental-Based Allographs, three-part series. Today, I'll be presenting Placental-Based Allographs, From Womb to Wound. This series is supported by an educational grant from MyMedics and provided by the North American Center for Continuing Medical Education, LLC, an HMP company. My name is Vincent Lee. I'm the medical director and founder of the Angiogenesis and Wound Healing Center at the Brigham and Women's Hospital, Department of Dermatology. I'm also an assistant professor at Harvard Medical School, and also I'm a director at the Angiogenesis Foundation in Massachusetts. Their learning objectives for today's program are to describe the placenta and the structures and function of placental-based allografts, to review the biology of placental-based allografts, and its components relevant to wound healing, regeneration, and tissue repair, and to examine the rationale for applying placental-based allografts for the healing of chronic wounds. Let's get started. Let me first talk a little bit about regeneration. We've all heard that some animals, like salamanders, can regenerate. After amputating a limb, the limb begins to have an early bud, as you can see from the left side. The bud grows into a mid and late stage and starts to differentiate into the final appendages. And you can see at the bottom left that by about 40 days, there's complete regeneration with a full anatomical pattern by about day 40. However, I think we've all heard this axiom that humans cannot regenerate. But we do regenerate. Regeneration happens in the hair and skin, in the mucosa of the gut, the mucosa of the oral cavity, in the liver, the nerves, as well as some other organ structures. In fact, 30 years after the earliest pioneers of tissue engineering, we can say that regenerative medicine has come of age. We've come to understand that regenerative therapy embodies the seed and soil hypothesis. So in the setting of ischemia or injury, you need seed such as stem and progenitor cells that come from reservoirs like bone marrow, adipose tissue, intestines, or the liver. You also need soil. So those are effects that come from the local microenvironment. And you also need a number of biological mediators that govern the interplay between the two. The Health and Human Services Department of the U.S. government set out a vision for regenerative medicine in 2020. And in this, the field of regenerative medicine is defined as approaches that use therapies that prompt the body to autonomously regenerate damaged tissues, or use tissue engineered implants to prompt regeneration, or to direct transplantation of healthy tissues into damaged environments. Let me turn to one important hallmark of regenerative healing, which is angiogenesis. Angiogenesis is defined as the growth of new capillary blood vessels in the body. It's a critical process in healing wounds. Angiogenesis ultimately results in the vascular granulation tissue that we see in wounds. And you can see from this microscopic view of histology that there are vessels with the lumens that you can see uh, is these holes in the middle of the tissue. Many of these vessels arise from within the tissue, but did you know that up to 20%, 26% of the endothelial cells that make up blood vessels actually originate from the bone marrow? 26% of granulation tissue and wounds at a distance site actually come from the bone marrow. This was first shown in thermal injury wounds like burns. And you can see in this immunohistochemistry, the EPCs, or endothelial progenitor cells, stained and shown by these arrows. 
The same is true with tissue injury in other organs. For example, the heart. After a myocardial infarction, endothelial progenitor stem cells are recruited from the bone marrow into the ischemic zones of the cardiac muscle, shown here in histology. And you can see stained in dark blue are the EPCs in the heart tissue itself. Given the importance of EPC stem cells in healing, it is not surprising that diseases cause a defect in the EPCs that also result in abnormal healing. This paper in the diabetes literature showed that there is defective recruitment, survival, and proliferation of these bone marrow-derived stem cells at sites of delayed healing in diabetic mice. Since stem cells are so critical to healing, the question is, can we find a way of exploiting natural tissues that are intrinsically regenerative and can recruit stem cells? One tissue with great regenerative capacity is placental tissue, which serves the mother and baby with barrier properties and nutrient transport. Placental tissues are also readily available since they are normally discarded tissues. When you take a look at different tissue types, here there are 35 different tissues that are, that are analyzed by microarray analysis. Microarray analysis looks at the expression levels of various biological mediators, and these are represented by a color tag. In this particular chart, you can see the red represents the highest levels of expression, and green represents the lowest levels of expression of the mediators that are seen on the right-hand side. And of these 35 tissues, you can see that placental tissue has the highest expression of all these 35 different tissues. So it's loaded with biological mediators that could impact on healing. The uterus and placenta are filled with vessels deriving from the umbilical cord, as you can see from this right-hand diagram. The amnion and chorion are the avascular tissues comprising the innermost layer of the placenta that directly separates the mother from the fetus. The role of the placenta are several. Number one, it surrounds the developing baby, as a, which is a, really a fluid-filled sac. It also serves as mechanical protection, allows the embryo to have free movement for growth and development, and it also protects from adhesions. The placental tissue also is immunoprivileged. It has anti-inflammatory properties, antibacterial properties, and is rich with growth factors and cytokines. There are now a multitude of placental-based allografts, sometimes called PBAs, that are derived from the various parts of the placenta. They differ in form, in cytokine level, collagen levels, and other components like hyaluronic acid. And you can see here in a simple diagram that there are basically four different kinds of placental-based allografts. Those derived from the amnion and chorion, they form a thin membrane or micronized particulates. They're high in cytokine levels, high in collagen, moderate in hyaluronic acid. There are also allografts derived from the umbilical cord. They're thicker. They also have high levels of cytokine, high in collagen, and high levels of hyaluronic acid. There's also amniotic fluid-based um, products that are liquid. They flow. You can also inject them. High in cytokines, low in collagen, high in hyaluronic acid. And finally, there are decellularized matrix components of the placenta that are particulate or cross-linked structures, low in cytokines, high in collagen, and low in hyaluronic acid. 
If we do a further, deeper dive into the placental tissue, into the cellular components of amnion and chorion, you can see that coming from top to bottom, starting at the amniotic fluid level, there's epithelium, basement membrane, more compact layer of collagen and fibronectin, then fibroblasts that are also filled with uh, other types of extracellular matrix materials, and then an intermediate spongy layer. Beneath that is the chorion, formed up of a reticular layer, a basement membrane, and trophoblasts. These placental-based allografts all require processing. So from the time of the live birth, and again, uh, traditionally, the placenta is something that's thrown away, but actually can be repurposed if processed appropriately, first tested for serological and microbial uh, contamination, undergoing processing, and finally in the far right, the outcome is a allograft in a number of different forms. The processing component of this is really among the most important because all of these tissues need to go through a process that involves cleansing, preservation, and sterility. And in, the, in, in different ways, each of these steps can result in different uh, processing and different attributes of the final product. For example, in terms of cellularity, are there viable cells within the final product? Are there non-viable or intact cells, or is it completely decellularized? During the preservation phase, are they frozen, cryopreserved, or is uh, water removed to, to create a dehydrated state? In terms of storage, is the storage something that needs to be frozen or can be kept at ambient uh, temperature with a shelf life? And finally, sterility can be done in a number of different ways, resulting either aseptic processing or terminal sterilization. And both the tissue type and this type of processing greatly influences the final product and its uh, clinical benefits. One specific process is called a purion process, which was developed specifically for placental tissue. It's a gentle process that has minimal tissue and graft manipulation, maintains the structural integrity of the tissue, leads to a dehydration process and dehydrated product. There's effective bioburden reduction, and the outcome are either sheets or a micronized powder. This purion process can result in a dehydrated human amnion chorion membrane, or DHACM, in which this process results in cells that can, within the wound uh, microenvironment, that can undergo proliferation, migration, biosynthesis, and these cell types would be fibroblasts, endothelial cells, epithelial cells, and a number of other cell types within the wound environment. This is from one of the earliest studies showing the presence of angiogenic and neurotrophic factors present in human amnion and chorion. And you can see in a deeper dive using immunohistochemistry that looking at different components such as laminin, laminin-5, TGF-beta, FGF-2, and PDGF-alpha and beta, all critical growth factors and components necessary for wound healing, that compared to just collagen alone, tissue that, has, that is derived from amnion and chorion are loaded with these different structural components or growth factors. And you can see that both on a quantitative level in the chart on the upper part of the slide, as well as through immunohistochemistry, the brown colors represent the presence of these components, while comparatively the right-hand side, the porcine collagen alone, has almost nothing. And so it appears as a very light gray sheet of tissue. This study shows the relative contributions of factors from amnion compared to the chorion. And you can see on the chart here 
that the darker blue represents the contribution from the amnion layer of the different growth factors, and the purple represents the contribution from the chorion layer for the different growth factors, such as FGF, EGF, PDGF isoforms, TGF, VEGF, interleukin-4 and 10, and placental growth factor. The takeaway is that products with both amnion and chorion are loaded with more mediators than products with purely amnion. The chorion is four to five times thicker than the amnion, and it turns out that if you take a look overall at different components, that about 80% of the growth factors are actually derived from the chorion. So there's an important contribution from the chorion for placental-based allografts. The importance of having multiple growth factors can be seen in this experiment, which I published some years ago. This experiment is one in which wounds were created in mice, and then either single or multiple growth factors were applied, and the wounds were measured and quantified. And you can see here on the vertical axis, the percent of wound closure, so 100% at the top is completely closed, and on the x-axis, time over the course of 20 days. There are three graphs curves that are shown here. The lowermost curve is the control, followed by a single growth factor in light purple, platelet-derived growth factor. That's actually a growth factor that we use in the clinic, the Kaplerman. And then the upper right in light blue, the upper curve in light blue, is the contribution of multiple growth factors, in this case, three growth factors, platelet-derived growth factor, vascular endothelial growth, growth factor, and fibroblast growth factor too. And you can see that at every time point, multiple growth factors accelerated healing all the way through to complete closure at day 20. So having multiple growth factors is helpful. And so whatever we can do to be able to add that on through the types of maneuvers that we can deliver to the wound is going to be helpful. Coming back to the importance of stem cells. After an injury, growth factors such as platelet-derived growth factor, vascular endothelial growth factor, and placental growth factors cause a number of things to happen. Nitric oxide gets expressed by endothelial cells. That leads to increased matrix metalloproteases, the release of soluble kit ligand, and mobilization of endothelial progenitor stem cells from the osteoblastic niche to the vascular niche in bone marrow. These cells then circulate to the site of injury. And you can see that if you apply placental allografts such as the dehacum, the dehydrated human amnion chorion uh, membrane into the site of the wound, you can actually get stem cells to be recruited and implanted into the site of the wound. And I'm going to demonstrate how the use of a dehydrated human amnion chorion membrane allograft can recruit these stem cells. This is a study showing the effect of dehydrated human amnion chorion membrane implanted in surgical sites in mice compared with ADM controls. ADM is acellular dermal matrix. And you can see that on the vertical axis is the CD34% cell engraftment percent, and on the horizontal axis is the days after implant of the purion-processed dehydrated human amnion chorion membrane allograft. And you can see increased 30, 30 CD34 positive progenitor cells compared to the controls. And these were visualized in the peri-implant space and in the skin overlying the allograft. This was looked at using immunohistochemistry at both the peri-implant space and the surrounding skin over the allograft.
And in this immunohistochemistry, you can see that the dehydrated human amnion chorion membrane induced stem cells, and those stem cells eventually resulted in increased angiogenesis, as demonstrated by the green-stained CD31-positive endothelial cells. Day three on the left-hand side, very little lights up, and over the course of 20, 25 days, on day 28, you can see prominent CD31-positive staining endothelial cells showing robust angiogenesis. Not only are endothelial cells stimulated, but this study shows the effect of the dehydrated human amnion chorion membrane allografts on dermal fibroblasts and cell cultures. So there's endothelial cells for androgenesis, and there's also fibroblasts, which are the component of dermal um, tissue that also need to proliferate and grow and fill in the wound. So you can see on the upper left corner how this experiment is done. Human dermal fibroblasts are grown in culture to confluence. Then you can scratch it to create an experimental wound. So there's now two sheets of living fibroblasts separated by a wounded area with no cells at all. And then you can apply an allograft like this dehydrated human amnion chorion membrane. Then observe, take photographs over 72 hours under a microscope. And you can see on the right-hand side, in the time-lapse photography, what happens. So on the left side is the control, which is only media. On the right-hand side is the effects of applying the, the placental allograft. And you can see how in the placental allograft-treated experimental wound, fibroblast cells start to proliferate and migrate, migrate and migrate and start to cover that experimental wound, that empty space that was scratched off over the course of 72 hours. Given the scientific data showing the regenerative capacity of placental tissues, let's now turn to clinical applications. One thing you might not have known is that placental-based allografts have long been used in ophthalmology, much longer than in wound care. In fact, this is one of the things that I tell my patients, which is that we can put these types of allografts in the eyeball, and it's been done for a long time in millions and millions of patients. So it's safe and it's effective because you don't put anything in your eyeball. This is a study of patients with acute ocular burns treated by either standard of care or with amniotic membrane therapy. And in this prospective randomized trial of 100 patients, the rate of epithelial healing was significantly better with the, with the placental-based allograft than in standard of care. And it's really transformed the way ophthalmologists and ocular surgeons treat people who come in with eye burns, you know, when they get acid in the eye or some other type of injury. And you can see in these pictures that at the beginning, up on the top, this is what people come in looking like with the acute injury. And at the bottom, during their final visit, the difference between standard of care on the right-hand side, you can see still that the eye looks um, quite uh, injected, inflamed, um, vasodilated, and opaque um, corneas, compared to the left. After the amniotic membrane trans transplant, the eye looks actually relatively normalized. And this was really a turning point in the treatment of these uh, types of injuries. And in fact, in the area of wound management, we were kind of second to this particular use of, um, of these products, but they've been very successful um, in our clinical practice. Number one is that unlike some of the other types of um, therapies and allografts that are available, these are generally shelf-stable, and once you remove them from their packaging, they're easily cut, easily manipulated, and placed directly on the wound. They tend to be adsorbed in, 
and the clinical results have been always quite impressive. Having said that, it's a reminder here that you can't just slap a placental-based allograft on any wound. You have to still do all the things that we do for modern wound management. Do you have a diagnosis? Can you address the underlying issue? Is it an inflammatory wound? Is it grossly infected? Uh, what's the reason why it existed? Are there biomechanical uh, pressures that haven't been um, dealt with? So diagnosis is critical. And of course, everything else that we normally do in wound management still has to be done prior to using these. So that would include sharp debridement, you know, uh, routinely, um, which we do in almost all our patients, maintenance uh, debridement with um, en enzymes at home, um, possibly. Uh, addressing the wound microenvironment. Is the moisture in the wound something that can be addressed using dressings that are either absorptive or provide hydration? Bacterial burden, uh, not only is the wound grossly infected, but is there still an element of bacterial um, load within the tissues that could be better addressed using some type of antimicrobial approach, antimicrobial dressing, whether um, you know it's silver or iodine-based or any of the other uh, types of um, modalities we have available. And finally, most patients have some comorbidities, whether it's venous reflux disease, uh, whether there's some biomechanical um, issue uh, that needs um, some type of offloading, um, improving perfusion. There's also, of course, nutritional status and all the other types of things that we have to address looking at the patient as a whole. And if these things are addressed first, you're likely to get the most optimal outcomes once, when you use an advanced, dress, an advanced modality like a placental-based allograft. So once the wound bed is properly prepped, then when you add a, a PBA, placental-based allograft, the data shows that these wounds do heal faster. In this case, this is a cohort of patients with diabetic ulcers that are either treated with standard of care or with the purine process dehydrated human amnion chorion membrane. And in this study, you can see the massive difference in healing. Vertical axis shows percent surface area reduction. So complete healing is at 100%. Zero is at the beginning of the ulcer, completely open. And standard of care is the purple curve on the bottom. And you can see over this course of the six-week study that the PBA allograft-treated wounds healed significantly faster earlier at all these different time points. This is to show you um, in uh, some of my patients that uh, we've had very good experience. This is a chronic wound in a patient that has multiple comorbidities. So those were addressed. The, wounds were, uh, the wound was debrided. Bacterial bio burden was managed. And then here, you can see that we applied a perion-processed dehydrated human amnion chorion membrane. We do not um, do any fancy, um, um, th anything fancy in terms of adhering it to the, to the wound. Uh, we just apply a, a primary dressing, a secondary dressing, and uh, uh, there's not much that needs to be done by either the patient um, or by us, and we see them back, we remove it, and if necessary, um, we can reapply. In some cases like this, even a single application results in improved granulation tissue. You can see this is at the first um, week of follow-up. It's nice and clean, nice um, exuberant uh, granulation tissue. And that's followed over the course of the next few weeks by very nice epithelialization in the middle image, and at one month time on the far right, the wound is completely closed. So some of these wounds close very well just with a single unit 
of a placental base allograft, while others, and these are on a case-by-case -case basis, can require um, weekly or biweekly applications. This is another example of a patient uh, with uh, a diabetic patient with a poorly healing wound, unhealed for um, over a year, and after providing the proper wound bed preparation, debridement, bowel burden control, we then applied a placental-based allograft, and you can see in this particular case we applied um, three sequentially over the, over the course of um, a month, and you can see that led to complete healing. We've also noticed that uh, these these particular um, placental-based allografts uh, are also something that just anecdotally seems to result in some reduction of pain, and that's something that is very good for um, the patient. So there's lots of different modalities. These placental-based allografts are only one. And um, in fact, there are now many placental-based allografts. And we're, of course, uh, used to growth factor therapy. There's cellular therapy, bioengineered skin substitutes, cryopreserved substitutes, um, lots of different collagen-based dressings, and goes on and on and on. And what do we do? What is the way that we should choose to use which therapy? There are so many. So ideally, clinical practice should be focused on evidence. How do you look at evidence? You need to look at what the studies show. So let's look at this one meta-analysis. This is from the Cochrane database, and it shows a forest plot looking at studies that compare skin grafts versus standard of care. And you can see that the forest plot is a way of showing a, um, the data as a whole from multiple studies, and it measures the effect, sometimes called an odds ratio for these studies. And you can see in the center section, in the, um, in the purple square, there's a horizontal line. That's a confidence interval. And the overall meta-analysis measure effect is this vertical line that goes straight down. And it shows where it lands is whether overall the entire data that exists from different studies either shows overall the effects are better for one therapy or the other therapy. So if you take a look at the, in this particular case, this is split thickness skin grafts versus standard of care. Now, the only time that it doesn't show anything is when it lands on one. And in fact, this particular study lands on one, showing that there really is no particular uh, difference between split thickness, thickness skin grafts or standard of care. That means that it's essentially equivalent. Yet, clinicians do grafting all the time for wounds. And I know many um, clinicians who say, well, that's the gold standard or that's where all the data is. And yet, if you really look at the evidence, there's really scant evidence that that works. And yet, we do it all the time. And it's the same, not we, but there are clinicians out there who do grafts all the time for chronic wounds. And for, for every one of the, the, a type of therapy that has been looked at using a clinical study, there are hundreds of therapies that have no data at all. And I think that's where we're at. We have lots in the community of wound healing, we have lots and lots of different therapeutic approaches. Only a few actually have any clinical data. And those are the ones that we really should focus our efforts on. So of course we have our own clinical experience, but we also have data and we really need to use both of them. So let's turn our attention now to the clinical data on placental-based allografts. So here is a list of all these different products representing different components of the placenta tissue. So we mentioned this, I mentioned this at the beginning of the talk. You've got amnion grafts, you've got amnion and chorion, 
components in grafts. Grafts derives from umbilical cords. Grafts derived from placenta, from um, other placental tissues as a whole. Grafts that are micronized, amnion chorion. Allografts that are really amniotic fluid. And some combination of all the different components. And they actually have been studied. You can see the number of level one studies shown here for each of these types. Now, not everyone has been studied, but some of them have been studied in um, a greater number and greater depth. So you can see here that there hasn't really been any true clinical studies for amniotic fluid or um, uh, placental as a whole tissue-based grafts, but there are many studies for these other types, for the amnion chorion grafts, for amnion grafts themselves, and even for the micronized um, injectable versions. So these level one studies are studies that are randomized and controlled, where patients are randomly assigned to either the treatment or the control, and they're really considered one aspect of a gold um, standard for a clinical trial. And these studies have focused not only on one wound, but different types of wounds for diabetic foot ulcers, as well as venous-like ulcers, and also even plantar fasciitis. So I'd like to go through in some detail some of the studies focusing on um, some specific placental-based allografts. So one of the most studied placental-based allografts is this purion-processed dehydrated human chorion amnion membrane allografts. There's probably more studies on this particular type of allograft than the others. And let's focus just on the diabetic foot ulcer as an example target disease. This is one of the earliest clinical studies from 2013. And it's the, the study that I showed earlier of the, of the graph of PBA allografts compared to standard of control. But let me go through some of the quantitative data and the differences between treatment and control here. So in this particular study that Chuck Zellin conducted, healing at four weeks was 77% for the allograft treated wounds compared to only 0% standard of care. Even at six weeks, standard of care only had 8% of healing compared to 92% of healing with the placental-based allograft. This was from a um, single center, relatively small, 25 patients, but it was one of the earliest um, pieces of evidence that there was nice clinical data that gave the rationale to use these particular types of allografts. The mean time to healing in this particular study was also two and a half weeks, so it was a very quick healing. This is another study from 2013. Retrospective, 11 patients. And in this particular analysis, the healing in diabetic foot ulcers at 12 weeks was 91%. The strengths of this study was that it was a crossover evaluation, and it really looked at challenging patients. Those were people who previously were non-healing, even despite other types of um, modalities. Of course, the weakness is it's relatively small from a single center, and it was retrospective. This is another study, larger, 18 patients, also from Dr. Zellin's um, center. And the strength of this study was that it had a much longer-term um, analysis, looking at people who were treated with this purine processed dehydrated human amnion chorion membrane allograft, and what happened to them after they healed. Because it's not just good enough to get people healed if they break down again. And it turns out that in this study, at 12 months, so a year afterwards, 94.4% of people with diabetic foot ulcers actually remain healed after they were treated with the a placental-based allograft. This is a study from 2014, also diabetic foot ulcers, a larger study now, 40 patients. And in this particular 
study healing at four weeks was 70%, 82.5% by six weeks, and 92.5% at 12 weeks. The mean time to heal was 2.4 weeks when there was a weekly application. One of the interesting pieces of data that came from the study is how often should you apply a placental-based allograft? In this study, when they were applied every other week, biweekly, the mean time to healing was 4.1 weeks. In the patients where there were weekly applications, the mean time to healing was 2.4 weeks. So it almost cut it down by half. So from this type of study, you can start to see how we might, in, how we might influence our uh, clinical use of placental-based allografts. So we tend to look on a weekly basis and see how the wounds are looking, whether they are there's a trajectory to healing that looks like they're going to heal fine without another application. But in those that are larger and that look like they really need to be um, uh, accelerated or, or maintain the trajectory of healing, then we'll apply on a weekly basis. Study strengths here were it was a prospective randomized controlled trial. In fact, these patients uh, were screened using a surrogate marker, and it allowed for up to a 20% reduction of uh, a wound reduction at two weeks. So uh, it, was a, it was a very um, strong enrollment criteria. The weaknesses, of course, is that it's still relatively small and only from a single center. This is another study from 2014 in which there were 100 patients, so much larger, also from multiple sites, four different sites. Prospective, randomized, controlled. And one of the important things that it really was uh, trying to determine comparative effectiveness, which is a buzzword now, meaning uh, looking at different types of modalities, which ones are the most effective to use. In this particular study, Dehydrated human amnion core membranes were compared to standard of, standard of care, but also compared to bioengineered skin substitutes, BSS. And in these patients, looking over the course of the study period, at four weeks, 85% of placental-based allografts treated wounds were healed, versus 35% in those treated with bioengineered skin substitutes and only 30% with standard of care. At six weeks, 95% of patients treated with dehydrated human amnion chlorine membranes were healed, compared to 45% treated with bioengineered skin substitutes, and only 35% who were treated with standard of care. And by the end of the study period, 12 weeks, 97% were healed when they were treated with the placental-based allograft, versus 73% when they were treated with bioengineered skin substitutes, and 15% when they were treated with standard of care only. Now, this particular study wasn't powered to look for statistical significance between the bioengineered skin substitutes and the standard of care groups. So we can't really say that the bioengineered skin substitutes were necessarily better than the standard of care in this case. But you can see clearly that the placental-based allograft the purine process dehydrated human amnion chlorine membrane treated patients did far better than either the other um, arms uh, for sure, the, either the bioengineered skin substitutes or the standard of care. In this study from 2016, diabetic foot ulcers were studied in a prospective randomized controlled trial, and this time with an intent to treat analysis. And this Intent to treat analysis, or ITT, is the way that the FDA likes to look at um, studies. So if you enter the study, you're counted, whether kind of no matter what happens. Once you enter, you're, you're part of the denominator. And that tends to lower your numbers. So it, this is a nice, rigorous study. It said 40 patients, multi-center from five different sites. And you can see the results in diabetic foot ulcers. The healing at six weeks showed that 
of placental-based allograft-treated patients healed, compared to only 15% of those treated with standard of care. And by 12 weeks, it was 85% healed with the placental-based allograft treatment, compared to only 25% of those treated with standard of care. So there's a common theme here. These placental-based allografts show time and time again in all these studies to be better than standard of care. One of the interesting things that came, came out of this uh, study was the number of graphs that were used during the 12-week period, and the mean number was 3.8. In this study from 2018, there were 110 patients, so is a large, rather large um, uh, number of participants from multi-center uh, uh, here, 14 different sites in a prospective randomized um, trial. And these are adjudicated in a blinded fashion, meaning that the people who are evaluating them really didn't know um, exactly uh, what they were looking at other than the outcome measures. And in, the, in this particular study in diabetic foot ulcers, healing at 12 weeks was 80, 81% with the placental-based allografts versus only 55% with standard of care. And even when you look at it using this rigorous intention-to-treat analysis, the ITT, it still showed 70% healed when they were treated with the placental-based allograft versus only 50% with standard of care. In this particular study, there was a nice follow-up that was done. And again, looking at what happens to these patients whose wounds have healed, do they open? Do they remain closed? And it turns out that 95% of the placental-based allografts treated wounds were completely healed versus only 86% of standard of care. So there were a significantly greater number of um, people who were basically bouncing back when they were treating with standard of care. So uh, again, uh, the amount of data, the number of studies are showing that Purion process dehydrated human amnion chorion membrane allografts are, uh, are powerful facilitators of healing. And in these rigorous clinical studies, um, comparing standard, standard of care to the placental-based allograft. So in conclusion, I hope what I've been able to show you is that we're in a new era that's based on regenerative healing. And we know quite a bit about the science. There's a lot more to learn. But the role of different cell types, uh, the role of recruitment of stem cells from the bone marrow, all these are a new, new modality, a new insight into how we can heal wounds. The placenta tissue itself provides for a um, reservoir of these biological mediators for healing. And I hope I've been able to show you that the placenta is one of the most um, regenerative, um, highest regenerative capacity tissues in the human body, which makes sense. Um, they're the things that really um, are allowing new babies to form and grow. But the way that the placenta tissue is processed because there are now many different kinds of placental-based allografts. The way the process does make a difference. You're talking about the type of tissue, you're talking about the type of cells, you're talking about the type of processing that leads to this ultimate uh, reservoir. Are we putting on um, matrix? Are we putting on cells? Are they viable, not viable? Are they we're putting on growth factors? Um, a few or many, and all of the type of placental-based allografts vary in their profile. So um, I think the good news is that we have an array, um, an armamentarium of all of these different uh, types of placental-based allografts. Um, but we should be very thoughtful about which we're applying. And it turns out that there really is value to applying, um, for example, from a scientific point of view, both amnion and chorion, which um, provides for the 
a, a greater number of growth factors and mediators. Emerging clinical data is really providing an evidence basis for the use of these placental-based allografts. And I hope I've shown you just um, a few snapshots of the numerous studies that are now done. I was just talking about diabetic foot ulcers. There's also studies with venous-like ulcers. And it's these types of um, uh, rigorous level one RCT studies that are allowing us to feel like we have a justification to choose specific modalities like placental-based allografts over standard of care, over a skin graft, and possibly over many of the other modalities that we might use in the clinic. And I think we all know as clinicians that there's never any single one magic bullet. But in our clinical experience, we've been able to combine the use of um, other types of therapies, other types of modalities with placental-based allografts um, in order to get the most beneficial clinical outcome. And I think it's the data mixed with our experience that can lead us to developing um, excellent clinical outcomes. And at the end of the day, these placental-based allografts seem to be a really unique, they're off the shelf, and they can be helpful in so many different applications. We've talked about diabetic foot ulcers. I see a lot of venous um, uh, stasis ulcers, but we also have used this extensively in some of our patients with um, inflammatory ulcers, in um, um, patients that are post-surgical, um, uh, where the, the wound dehisses, um, and there seems to be many, many different applications. Um, but I, I hope that uh, this particular presentation has been able to give you some sense of the science as well as the clinical data that's emerging behind this very exciting um, new set of therapies that we have access to. So this concludes the presentation, and I hope you found it insightful. Please join us for the next two presentations, How Science Can Guide Practice, Placental-Based Allografts, presented by Dr. Gregory Schultz, and Optimizing Outcomes by Assessing the Evidence, Placental-Based Allografts, presented by Dr. Dennis Orgill. Thank you.